Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Liberty and the Law, the podcast series that examines the critical elements of a strong legal defense in criminal cases. Join respected attorney James Dore for this lively discussion on the rights of criminal defendants and the important role defense attorneys play in our legal system. In my regular discussions with Lavelle Law Attorney James Dore uh, to prepare for our podcast and, and often in the podcast themselves, I, I often admit to being a bit confused about certain aspects of a case that we'll be covering, um, which, of course, makes his participation in liberty and the law really the critical element to the series. Hi, everybody. This is Jim Mitchell. And, uh, you know, the case we're going to review today, uh, People of Illinois versus Milan, I, I have to say that this case is fairly straightforward. Uh, nonetheless, I'm, I'm pleased to have Attorney Dorr with me for this discussion, knowing he's going to share his knowledge, shed some light on the findings in the case. So, uh, James, uh, good afternoon. Thanks for being on hand to help me out again. Hey, thanks, Jim. It's uh, great to be back on. It's it's always fun to have some different uh, cases to discuss and real-life, uh, you know, facts involved. They all take different twists and turns. So, you know, sometimes it, it may seem like an easy decision, but, uh, you know, that's just kind of how it worked out in the end. It, 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 there's you know, twists and turns to get us to where we are today. And that's kind of what look, the look litigator comes in and what we talk about. Yeah, and that's, you know, I want to look at this from a couple of different perspectives. We'll talk about the case, the finding, and then, uh, time permitting, talk about the uh, the defense process as well. Uh, Illinois versus Milan draws from a recent case in the Illinois Appellate Court, uh, which referred back to a 2017 conviction ruling in Circuit Court of Cook County. Um, take us through the uh, uh, charges in the original case, if you would. Okay, well, this charge, the charges in the original case here are unlawful use of weapon, UUW, by a felon. Um, in this case, uh, the defendant had in, uh, charged here had a prior uh, possession of a stolen motor vehicle in his record, so he had to, clearly he had a felony background and is not uh, legally entitled to carry, um, a, to have a weapon on or about his person. So that's essentially what the UUW unlawful use of weapon would be, the actual possessing, knowingly possessing the weapon about his, on or about his person. All right, so that's, those are the charges um, that are, that are uh, at issue here. And the, okay. conviction, and the conviction in this case was based upon a confession. So the, the, the uh, case you just brought up was People v. Lara, and that uh, case is a 2012 case, and it says basically a confession alone is insufficient to prove the corpus delecti of an offense. There must be some corroborating evidence tending to prove that the crime has been committed. So he can't just, uh, the defendant can't just say, I committed X crime. There has to be some independent corroboration of that crime having, been a, having occurred, and that's the corpus delecti. Yeah, let's walk through a lot, a lot of different um, things I want to get into here. But um, uh, we've sort of described the case. Now, what was the basis for his appeal? Um, well, the basis for the appeal was that the, the, the evidence was insufficient to prove his guilt. And it, 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 the evidence being uh, there was a confession and then some hearsay evidence that was also admitted uh, at the trial court level. So the, the, the defense is saying, hey, that, that evidence was insufficient. Um, and the ruling court or the appellate court looks at this as a standard of, you know, assuming everything's true, does that, does that convince the trier of fact that a, that a violation of the, of the law occurred? So. It's, it, at this stage, they're assuming everything that the prosecutors put in evidence was true. But in spite of that, 
the appellate court reversed this ruling saying um, in essence that there was no uh, evidence of the crime having occurred that was admitted other than the confession itself. There was no even corroborating yeah. evidence of the confession. Well, let's, let's walk through that original case. Um, okay. uh, what do we know about what transpired that uh, led to the to the charges being filed in the first okay. place? What what actually took place there? Evidence uh, was at it, it, a certain location in Chicago. There was uh, dispatches from um, police dispatch that two different officers responded to. Basically, one dispatch saying that shots had been fired, and there was another dispatch that somebody with a was with a gun at that location. So. Um, Responding officers approached, um, and based on their conversations with people on the scene, they went to the door, and the defendant actually answered the door, and he was unarmed. And then the, search, the, the responding officers then conducted a search of the house. They searched the defendant, they searched the house, they searched the living room, a crawl space in the basement, and essentially what they found was a, was a bullet hole in the, in the wall of the living room, there was a holster on top of a television in, in that same living room, and then a, a 32 caliber weapon that was in a, in a basement crawl space. Um, and I think they, they introduced pictures of the bullet hole, the holster, and a crawl space, but no photographs of the gun or the gun itself. They were not offered in the evidence at, at the trial. So um, probably should have been, but they did not. So. And, um, and what about the the, the the just the the police officers? You said there were several on site. What about their process in terms of memorializing and and getting some of this evidence? You already mentioned that not having a photo of the gun. What what else kind of stood out to you in this case? Another evidence that they had was the confession. So after the defendant was placed under arrest, brought to the police department, he was Mirandized. So given his Miranda rights, everybody watches TV, can hear them, but we've done our podcast on Miranda before. So I'm assuming that he was Mirandized properly. But um, the defendant apparently told the officer that he retrieved a gun from the top of a kitchen cabinet and pointed it at, and there, there was the two youths that were mentioned in this case, and told them to get the F away from him. Right? So that was the evidence. But there was no statement that was ever memorialized to that. So usually with a, with a Miranda warning, so, you know, you, the Officer will give the warnings. There'll be a kind of a checklist where you can, you know, initial each one where the defendant would would say, "I was given these following rights," and then they would write a statement and they would sign off on a statement saying, "Yeah, I gave this statement voluntarily." There was nothing like that. The defendant never was never asked to write out a statement, was never asked to review a, a statement that he may have given and sign off on that. Um, there was no recording of any of the statement ever issued. So. There was just no no real uh, evidence of that statement itself, other than what the officer I think wrote in his report. So, I think there's some insufficiency of uh, that Miranda warning or that process kind of creeping through some of this, reading between the lines. Well, you know, it's, what's interesting to me, and and I want you to clarify this for me because I want to make sure I'm hearing it correctly. As I've mentioned, sometimes this uh, this can get a little confusing, but. Here you have uh, a person who um, confesses, you know, they're, they're offered the Miranda rights, they offer a confession to the charge, and yet uh, the appellate court finds that the confession itself is enough. So so is, is that what we're understanding here, is that unless there's some other evidence to support the confession, the confession, confession alone isn't enough to, uh, to lead to a conviction? Exactly, and that's what the People v. Lara case would suggest confession alone is insufficient 
there must be some corroborating evidence. Now, it doesn't have to rise to the level of proof beyond a reasonable doubt, you know, but it does have to rise to some evidence of reliability. So, um, for example, in this case, the two youths that the officers approached when they first got on scene, if they were called to trial to testify as to what they observed, that would be the kind of evidence that they, they would need in a case like this. So not only was the defendant alleged to have had a gun or shot, a, shot the gun, but they could show up, the, the two witnesses saying, ah, they could point a finger and say, he pointed a gun at us, right? That would be the UUW then, right? So that would be the, some kind of, that would be the proof they would need. Um, but they tried to get that evidence in through a hearsay exception, and it just was not sufficient as a hearsay exception to prove the corpus delecti of the offense charged here of the unlawful possession of the weapon. Right. And I want to talk about the possession question. We're, we're talking about uh, an appeal of the people of Illinois uh, v. Gregory Milan, September 2020 case uh, here on Liberty and the Law today. And Lavelle Law Attorney James Doerr is here, as he always is, to guide us through the legal process surrounding the case. Um, our entire podcast series of several years now can be found at LavelleLaw.com and on BlogTalkRadio.com. Um, James, talk to me about possession. You said that the police found a gun, they found a bullet hole, they found the person on site, but uh, the, the court, the appellate court didn't seem to think that the, the possession charge uh, was warranted in this case. Right. Well, there's two ways to prove possession. It could be actual possession. So say when he answered, the defendant answered the door, if the officers had done a pat-down search of him, discovered the weapon, and if it was lawfully admitted into evidence, then that weapon would be an actual, that would be actual possession of that weapon. So that would be one way to prove it. Another is constructive. So they find a weapon on scene and through other evidence establish that the defendant had um, exercised immediate control and exclusive control over the area where the weapon was found. So here they're trying to say that the weapon uh, found in the basement was, uh, you know, actually, or was, was constructively possessed by the defendant in this case. And they didn't have evidence tying him to the scene, to the basement of this house. Um, at the trial level, the defendant called his mother as, as, as a witness, and she's the homeowner. And she was not at home when this, when this all occurred. She was at a neighbor's house. But she testified that the defendant did not live in that house, that she, he had moved out of that basement four or five years earlier, had been living in Danville, and there was no evidence tying him directly to that basement. Um, often you'll find in these kind of cases, uh, the police will admit uh, certain records showing that uh, a person lives at, at the residence. So bills coming in there in, in, in the defendant's name, you know, a cable bill, um, uh, you know, mail, personal mail in that room, uh, the defendant's clothes in that room. Um, you know, it could be gender specific and, and tying it, you know, to clothes like that. There's, there's things, that, there's evidence that they could find to, to, to establish somebody having exclusive control over a, an area. And they didn't put in any kind of evidence to, that, to this charge. In fact, the evidence presented by the defense was exactly the opposite. So the, the, the evidence, that evidence was considered by the appellate court um, in, in saying that the you know, defendant was not. Uh, tied to that basement sufficiently to, to have that gun found in the, in the crawl space, you know, the possession that tied to him. Now, in the original trial, um, 
the defendant was convicted. Obviously, this went to appeal, and he appealed on two grounds, that evidence was insufficient, as you've described, and then also raised the question of uh, the defense counsel um, and, and how they handled the, the case, and particularly perhaps some, some pretrial motions. The appellate court didn't even address that because they they found for the defendant on the, on the first cause um, alone. So let's not rehash and, as you like to say, uh, Monday morning quarterback the attorney, but let's talk about pretrial motions. And just from a defense point of view in a case like this, what are things that uh, – you know, you think young attorneys should know about uh, doing everything they can before you even get to trial. Well, then you're going to want to review, and we talk about this in, in reviewing discovery and the discovery process, getting the police reports, getting all the evidence that the prosecutors intend to use to, to establish guilt, and, and trying to challenge the sufficiency of that evidence. So that can be done at trial, which is done in this case, or it can be done uh, leading up to trial through pretrial motions. In the case here, you know, some things are jumping out at me when I'm when I'm hearing about a confession and the poss- and the sufficiency of uh, Miranda waivers. I want to challenge the, the, that with a pretrial motion to, to suppress the statement. Also, the evidence that was found in the house, right? The the gun, the holster, the, the you know whatever else, the bullet hole pictures. You know, the the, the police have to have a, a the right to be in that home to start with. So, mm-hmm. I would challenge that on the sufficiency of the of the search of the house. And we've done plenty of search and seizure uh, uh, discussions, and it does, you know, warrantless searches are, pro, are per se unreasonable. So, it, it, what, why were they? Why did the police search this home? Why was that not challenged? Is what I would. One of the things I would like to know. Um, so, without getting into it, because the appellate court obviously they didn't have to get into that that let that um, those grounds because the evidence was insufficient to convict, and they overruled or, or reversed the, the uh, trial court based on that. Um, so we never really get to the ineffective assistance of counsel, which you'll find that as a grounds on a lot of people, especially people in custody, um, challenging their convictions. That would be one that's, that's thrown in there. Um, so it can be strategy, um, which ultimately worked if you were factoring the appeal here. Um, so there's reasons you would you would – um, screen for a motion, but not necessarily file it, depending on, uh, you know, uh, say witnesses weren't there at trial that they, the state probably needed. That would be a reason you would go forward ahead of your motion saying, ah, the, the defense, the prosecutors aren't ready. Maybe that's a time when we say we are ready. So that's something to keep in mind. Well, uh, great recap, James Dorr. Thank you for being with us as always. Um, Enjoy the conversation. We can always share more at LavelleLaw.com or call James 847-705-7555, and uh, he'll be happy to answer questions for you. Thanks, everyone, for listening.